you would, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're dealing with a picture of sanctification in verses 11 through 14. Picture of sanctification, verses 11 through 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Please follow in the reading of the Holy Word of God. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, what an awesome text. Thank you. Thank you have given me the privilege to teach through this book. But Father, also to be laid bare by it. Father, to step into the heavenlies and see the awesomeness of a pastor's heart and the Apostle Paul. And yet the great wonder of wonders the love of you who spoke existence into being and died for us even though we were yet sinners. Father, may we be overwhelmed with this as we continue to press on to the upward calling of Christ. Father, I ask this day, you teach us all. Open our hearts, open our souls, that we may hear and we may see. To my King, my Lord, Christ's name. Amen. Well, you're not going to believe this. Almost, what, eight years ago? Eight years ago I started into this book, and I will finish it today. Go figure, huh? So let me see if I can put a great big bow on it and see how it looks, all right? We have two letters to the Corinthians. We have two that we don't have. The Corinthians sent the Apostle Paul a letter. They had some doctrinal questions, and Paul answered them. And then we have a letter that is called 1 Corinthians. So there was a letter written from the Corinthians to the Apostle Paul. And if you go look at 1 Corinthians, you see that the first six chapters, he is admonishing them, rebuking them, because whoever had brought the letter back had shared what was going on in the Corinthian church, and he was very very upset. And then in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, you see him say, now concerning the things you asked. Okay? But if you read the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, yee! That was nasty. Okay? Because in that letter is this rebuke, but then all of a sudden you have chapter 13 and chapter 15. Chapter 13 is what we call the love chapter. Now, everybody likes to use it for their weddings. It has got nothing to do with weddings. It's got to do with relationship between believers. It bears all things. Have you ever had some believers are a little harder to bear than others? Okay. But it is by love that you still overcome that. All right. Then you have chapter 15. Okay. Chapter 15 is the resurrection text. And he's saying, look, he raised him from the dead. What is your problem? All right, but you also have chapter 11 on the corruption of the Lord's table and how some people were losing their health because they were taking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. So if you look at the whole of 1 Corinthians, that's not a fun letter. Okay, and yet I see churches who want to be like that. And I see churches who are like that, very arrogant. Okay. Between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul makes a surprise visit to Corinth. And false teachers, when you let sin run amok in the congregation, false teachers have an avenue to come in. And they had come in. All right? And they were calling themselves super apostles. And they were doubting whether the apostle Paul was actually an apostle. They were doubting and they were sowing seeds of doubt among the congregation. So when he did a surprise visit, they started accusing him publicly in the congregation. And the Corinthian congregation did not defend the Apostle Paul. So he left the church crushed, absolutely heartbroken. I cannot think of a man whose heart is for the church 
more than the Apostle Paul, to have the church attack him that way, how it had to overwhelm his soul. And he said it. He said it as much as in 2 Corinthians. But before he wrote 2 Corinthians, he wrote a severe letter. Okay, we don't have that letter. Now, I read 1 Corinthians and think, well, that's just a severe letter. But he wrote another one. It's a severe letter. And Titus says the congregation turned. Okay, but the problem is, is that the false are still there. And he says, I'm coming back. I'm coming back a third time. All right. So he, he says the congregation's coming back, but he understands that you still have these people who are there throwing accusations, seeds of doubt. It, it's, um, you see it in our society today. Just say something. It don't have to be true. Just say it. Okay? And everybody goes, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. All right? And, and so it, mankind hasn't changed any. But what I want you to understand is that you can, like in chapter 7 specifically in 2 Corinthians, you see the reconciliation between the Corinthian believers and the Apostle Paul. All right? And in the first part of it, he's exhorting them to stand fast. Okay? Because he's already told them, I want to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. All right? And what happens in a church sometimes... You're not going to believe this. But egos get in the way. I know and you don't. Or I've been through more than you don't. And it's, well, you don't understand because you haven't been through this. Well, I got news for you, brothers and sisters. The flesh is the flesh. Okay? I don't care what you package your flesh in. Your flesh ain't no different than mine. You know, I've had people, you know, some of you know about my past. And people say, well, you know, you just... you just were in such darkness that when you came to the light, it was just amazing. <laughs> and I look at him as gently as I can, and I say, let me tell you something. Only difference between you and me, all the things you thought about, I just went ahead and did it. And there ain't no difference in the two. Okay? That was what has happened to the church in Corinth. And let me tell you something. If you get a slick teacher who appeals to the flesh, he can grow a congregation. Guaranteed. And, and he does it very skillfully by laying the lie right alongside truth, which brought me to chapter 10 of this letter. Chapter 10 of this letter began spiritual warfare. He says we need to understand that our war is not uh, with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers in high places. But the weapons of our war are not what you think they are. Because we are going against speculation and lofty things raised up against the true knowledge of Christ. Spiritual warfare has got nothing to do with little green men with horns and pitchforks. Okay? It has to do truth versus a lie. You have God who is truth, and then you have the father of lies. And it goes back a long ways when you hear this phrase, has God said. That's what the war is. And that's what the Apostle Paul starts realizing through chapter 10 through the end of the book. And that's where we're at. What happens when I ground myself in truth... And I put calluses on my knees in prayer. Your ego is gone. There's no room. I teach a leadership class occasionally. And one of the questions that I deal with in the leadership class is give me your definition of humility. And most of the time I get very good answers and all the rest of it. But inevitably they will ask me, what is your definition of humility? And I have the same definition, the absence of pride. Okay, all gone. You cannot have pride and humility exist in the same container. So someone who is humble is absent of pride. They realize I've got nothing. Okay, and every once in a while we just creep in there and say, well, but, but I went to college. So? 
so would I. Big deal. You know? I went to a whole bunch of different colleges. They were great. I don't understand why everybody wanted to go to class, though. Okay? But, I, I mean, I had a blast. I, you know, I think that we should all just be professional students. Just get rid of the professors. Okay? So, but I see this a lot. We don't understand what I've done. You know what? I don't care what you've done. Because when I look at it, I want to know what has God done. All right? Because that's way more entertaining. The Apostle Paul closes this letter out. What does sanctification look like? As we grow in our understanding of the word, as we grow and witness and bear testimony to the amazing things of our God, what does it look like? And that's what he's dealing with here. First thing that we looked at was in verse 11. It says it was a completion. It was a completion. Okay. What it means is the word in the original language doesn't mean that you need to add some things to it. It means everything is there. Put them in order. It's, it's sort of like uh, you could have a puzzle. And if you've got this puzzle, you need to get the pieces together. Or you don't know what the picture is. All right. So he's saying in the, the, the Greek term is all the pieces are there. Put them together. Get it in order. And that remember, now remember, you've got a jacked up church in Corinth. I mean, that place is a catastrophe. All right. But he's saying everything is there. First Corinthians chapter one, you are lacking in no spiritual gift. But you need to get them in order. You need to get them right. What does that completionist look like? Well, one, you'll rejoice. The people who understand what the Word of God says, the people who are in tune to what God is doing, regardless of what's going on, will always, always, always rejoice. And when you're rejoicing, you will be comforted because you are in line with the will of God. If you have all the pieces there, you will be in His Word and Instead of you trying to master his word, the word will be mastering you. Once that starts happening, you will be like-minded. You'll be like-minded. And once that happens, you will live in peace. There will not be any distractions between the fellowship. Takes you back to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is long-suffering. Love covers a multitude of sins. All right? But you can't understand that if you're not into his book and his book mastering you. It isn't you mastering this book. I've known people who've memorized vast numbers of text. And they're miserable. They're miserable. And they are not being used by God. And I know the reason. It's always the same basis. It's the ego. It's the ego. Epsilon, gamma, omega in the Greek always translated personal pronouns. The word is ego. And too many in the body of Christ today, it's all about me. What can I do for God? You can't do nothing for God. Did you know that? You all want to. But then you tell him what you're willing to do. And that's why you sit on the sidelines and you don't do nothing. All right? And then the God of love and peace will be with you. Why? You will know the love and peace of God that surpasses all understanding and it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And you know what? You will be going through rejoicing and driving everybody nuts. Because it doesn't matter what happens to you. No one can take that goofy grin off your face. Okay? But then, what we will find out is, what we looked at last week is, is that if I am got my parts in order, and I'm rejoicing, and the God of love and peace is with me, then I will have an affection in 12 and 13 that is visible. Greet each other with a holy kiss. That is seen. 
It used to be a cultural thing. Uh, it's not so much seen anymore. Okay? But if you have affection, a fondness for somebody, don't you know it? I mean, my uh, son-in-law, uh, Tara's water broke. And I get this text about 6.30. And it says, we're being admitted to the hospital. <laughs> Tara's water broke. Well, outstanding. And that was, that was it. So I text him back and it says, we'll pray. Praise the Lord. Because, you know, I'm not a doctor or anything. But if your water breaks, you're running out of options. Okay? So I'm like, well, this thing's getting ready to happen, isn't it? So I'm sitting around. I don't remember. I got to the house and I was waiting around. All of a sudden, about 11 o'clock at night, I get another text. She's received an epidural. It looks like it's happening fast. I text him back and says, all right, outside. So I'm sitting there going, all right. And I thought, well, I'll stay up a little while longer and a little while longer. And then I fell asleep. (laughs) So I get up in the morning. I look at my phone. There's nothing on there. Wait a minute, they give her an epidural or water broke, and you're telling me nothing's happened? Dude, there's... So I text him, yo, dude, are you still awake? <laughs> that's, that's what I texted him back. Okay, why? I have a fondness for Ivan. Because the, the kid, he's a young believer, but he has a ravenous appetite. He sits around when he realizes he's going to get to see me. He was here in town doing some stuff down at Fort Carson, and and... He, when he gets ready to come and visit me, and he, and he always asks, can, can we do lunch or can we do something like this? He says, he'll write out a list of questions that he has been reading in the Bible. And I, I need to ask you about this. I need to ask you about this. And I, I tell you what, from a pastor's perspective and a brother in Christ's perspective and a father-in-law's perspective, does it really get any better? All right. But there's an affection between me and Ivan. Okay, yeah, he's married to my daughter. I I pray for him every day. (laughs) I raised her. I was like, oh, you poor bugger. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) I can say that I'm the father. Okay, but you show it. If you care for somebody, don't people realize you care for them? Right. Which brings me to the conclusion A benediction. In the Bible, there are two words that we are very aware of if you've been in church very long. One is a doxology and one is a benediction. Does anybody know the difference? Just as I thought. Uh, A doxology are praises to God. Okay? Uh, We sing the doxology. All right? Praise Him. Right? Everybody know it? Okay. That's a doxology. We are praising God. A benediction is blessings from God. All right? That ends the message and we're done. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, that you, now that you know that. To pronounce a benediction is to solemnly invoke a blessing. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And let me tell you something. The Apostle Paul had a heart for people, and he's always invoking blessings from God to the people. Okay? So you guys are going to have to start writing real fast. I'm not going to go through all of these. I'm just going to give them to you. Okay? Romans chapter 1, verse 7 is a benediction. Romans 16, verse 20 is a benediction. 1 Corinthians, the letter of chastening, chapter 1, verse 3 is a benediction. Chapter 16, verse 23, is a benediction. Galatians, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, is a benediction. Galatians, chapter 6, verse 18, is a benediction. And that's amazing to me because Galatians is like Romans, except he's mad. Have you ever noticed when someone's mad, they talk really fast? Well, Romans covers everything that Galatians does, except Galatians, he's mad at him. Foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? That doesn't sound tender hearted. Okay. 
So I find it fascinating that even in the Corinthians and to the Galatians, he is calling divine blessings upon them. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2. Ephesians chapter 6, 23 and 24. Philippians chapter 1 verse 2. Philippians chapter 4, 2 and 3. Colossians chapter 1 verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, 28. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 2. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 18. Philemon 3. So do you see what I'm trying to get at? He's into... The, now listen, he praises. He puts doxologies too. Okay? But he asks for blessings from God to the readers of his letters. All right? That's amazing. I want divine blessings for these precious people. Okay? But this benediction is different than all the rest. This benediction is theologically rich and more profound than any of the others. Because this is the only benediction by the Apostle Paul that mentions all three persons of the Trinity. Okay? So, I have two things that are very important about this benediction. First, it's Trinitarian. Do you understand that that is the single greatest truth in the centralness of the Christian faith? Did you know that? Do you realize this? How many people don't believe in the Trinity? Muslims don't. Hmm. But they believe in one God. But he was the moon God. See, most Muslims don't understand there were 360 gods. They used the lunar calendar, same as the Jews. And Muhammad came along and says that the moon God is over all the other gods. His name is Allah. But they don't believe in the Trinity. The Mormons do not believe in the Trinity. Joyce Myers does not believe in the Trinity. T.D. Jakes does not believe in the Trinity. Many Pentecostals do not believe in the Trinity. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in the Trinity. This text is not a formal systematic exposition of the doctrine of the Trinity. It is just a natural outflow of the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul understands that every blessing in a Christian's life flows from the triune God. The doctrine of the Trinity is essential to the Christian faith. Okay? Listen, I want to be as straightforward with this as I can. Those who deny it commit idolatry. Here's the reason. They're worshiping a non-existent false god. That's idolatry. You know what that means? They forfeit the possibility of salvation. Okay, now everybody can jump up and down and say, Pastor, anybody knows that the word Trinity is not in the Scriptures. And I'll just smile at you, really smile, and really happy like and go, duh. <laughs> it may not be there in word, but it is clearly and unmistakably taught that the one true God has eternally existed in three co-equal and co-eternal persons. Okay? Now listen. Don't fall into all of the silliness. People will say, well, you know, the Trinity's like an egg. You have the white, the yolk, and the shell. And they're all one makes the egg. Oh no! It's more like water. You have steam. You have liquid. Or you have frozen. Okay? 
not all at the same time. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's where you're going to struggle with this. Because I heard a guy one time try to tell me it was like the Apollo moon landing. You had two on the surface of the moon and one circle, and that's just like the Trinity. Ah, uh, no, uh, ain't nothing like the Trinity. <laughs> okay, I mean, come on, people. Listen, you can't get your head around it. You just flat out ain't going to get your head around it. I mean, think about it. You want to get your head around something? You were saved in eternity past before the foundations of the earth. Okay. Grab that one. Sit down on it. Just have fun with it. Because that's mind-numbing. Before I made anything, I knew you were going to be saved. Well, wait a minute. How did you do that? Well, never mind. Go back to Trinity. It was like an egg. They are, they exist co-equal and they're co-eternal. Let me give you a summarization biblically. The Bible teaches there is only one God. Okay? We got that out of the way? Done. All right. Yet, the Bible in teaching us there is one God calls three persons God. Therefore, the three persons are the one God. That's why I get frustrated at times when I hear people call the Holy Spirit it. Okay? That, that, that's sort of like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. No, it's He. That's like saying God is it. Okay? God ain't it either. It is He. Okay? That's, that's you, know, you know, you know why we have these great natural disasters? Hurricanes, earthquakes, all the rest of it. They keep calling Him Mother Nature. Okay, and he's like, no, I tolerate this. You call me a woman, watch. There is only one God. There is no argument to that. I don't care whether you're in the Old Testament. I don't care if you're in the New Testament. All right, I'll go through a few of these for you. The second law, Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no gods beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Okay. Mosaic law right there. One God. All right. So King David. What does King David say? King David in Psalm 86 verse 10. 86 10. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Go to the prophets. Just one here. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 10. You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed and there is none after me. All right. Then it's amazing to me because he brings this up to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 4. Therefore, concerning eating things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. All right. So there are so many texts that deal in Scripture with there is one God. Here, I'll give you a bunch of them. Ready? Start writing. Deuteronomy 4, 39 and 35. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. 2 Samuel 7, 22. 2 Samuel 22, 32. 1 Kings 8, 23. And verse 60. 2 Kings 19, verse 15. And verse 19. 2 Chronicles 6, verse 14. Nehemiah 9, 6. Psalms 18, 31. 
Isaiah 37, 16 and 20. Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 8. Isaiah 46, verse 9. And of course, you can't leave out our dear brother Joel, chapter 2, verse 27. All right? See what I'm trying to get at? This isn't complicated. I mean, a cursory reading of the Bible finds out that there is one God. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians in chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, says this. Then comes the end, and he hands over the kingdom of God and Father. Then he also abolishes all rule and authority and power. Okay, so now we're calling God the Father. You see in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 and 3. You see God being called the Father in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23. Now this is freaking out Jews. They like God. This Father thing, man, you're getting awful brave. Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, and Jude 1. Alright? So you see that God and the Father are the same. And despite the teaching of the Father of lies... He is God the Father. Okay? Which, you know, you're you're probably saying, well, what has that got to do with the price of rice in China? Thought you never would ask. Okay, because let me show you something else. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? One God, right? Have you read verse 4? 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. You know what they just did there? Called Jesus, God and father. The same as God, Jehovah. Even the skeptics in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, man that we all know as Thomas, 20 verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Thomas, unless I see in his hands and the imprint of the nails and put my finger to the place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, my God. We know that the Apostle Paul returned to Corinth the third trip because that is where he wrote the letter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 9 verse 5, 9 verse 5. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Okay, now here's his description of Christ according to the flesh. Who is overall God blessed forever. Describing Jesus and Jesus is God blessed forever. But he also makes the same statement in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Peter makes the same claim in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, when he refers to Jesus as our God and Savior. God the Father, and you can't leave out this one, my favorite. God the Father... Calls the Son. One of my favorite texts, Jesus quoted this. It comes out of the book of Psalms. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says. This is Psalm 45, verse 6. Of the Son, he says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God calling the Son, God. Are you getting this? Because this is absolutely crucial 
to your faith. Okay? There are vast swaths of the Christian community or quote-unquote Christian community. <laughs> they call it. <laughs> Anymore, I mean, with the political season going on, everything's an evangelical. And, and I heard a, a claim against that now that every time we get a really good word, someone hijacks it and corrupts it. And so uh, we're going to go by a new term now. We're not going to be evangelicals. Okay, because everybody's an evangelical. We're going to be imputationist. Okay, and I'll let you look it up and you can figure out what it was I just said. But they can't steal that word. Okay, but they won't know what you said. I'm an imputationist. A what? Never mind. All right, so I've got God the Father, God the Son, Son the Father, Son the God. All right, what about the Holy Spirit? Well, I thought you would never ask. So I'll give you the Holy Spirit. If you look at the book of Acts, at the end of chapter 4, Barnabas sells a track of land and brings the money in and gives it to the disciples. Okay? Chapter 5, Ananias says he's going to do it. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. They kept back some of the price for himself and his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so they saw all the accolades that went out to Barnabas and they decided that they would sell a track of land and they'd do the same thing. Verse three says, but Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? All right. Verse four. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is God. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, or maybe probably is my favorite verse in all of Scripture. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Okay, so the conclusion of this letter in this benediction, this blessing to the people is Trinitarian. He is calling for the triune God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. To bless them. Now, think about it in the Great Commission in Matthew's gospel. Twenty eight. Verse 19, it says, go and baptize in the names or the name. It's singular. Okay, what name? God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it's one name. So Paul's calling a benediction to the Corinthians based on the Trinity. But also, if you read that verse, verse 14, this is something I really want us to think about today as we leave. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You know what else is in this benediction? Redemption. Redemption. When we think of salvation... When you think about your salvation, that is where the Trinity is clearly seen. Because he makes this statement, the love of God. The love of God. Listen, what was John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his son. One of my favorites, though. 
is Romans chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. Okay, remember what Paul says, the love of God. All right, look what it says in chapter 5 of Romans. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood. Okay, his blood would be Christ's blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. How can you not deal with the Trinity when it comes to redemption? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the second phrase of the Trinitarian benediction. It is dying as a sacrifice for sins. Chapter 5 of Romans, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Did you see that? We have the love of God. We have the death of Christ is His grace. Dying for the sacrifice of sin. For the salvation that affects the redeemed. You can see this also in 1 Corinthians 15.3. That's the resurrection text. You can see it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. And you also see it in 1 John 2.2. Okay? Now then, God so loved that He paid the sacrifice of His Son. Alright? Trinitarian, it's redemptive, but also... Wait a minute. You forgot the Holy Spirit. <laughs> no, I didn't. I shall never forget the Holy Spirit. What happens at the moment of salvation? You are placed into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says here in the benediction, correct? Okay, Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 11. <clears throat> However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you. Now, did you see what he just did? That's amazing. Everybody will tell you, well, you're born again, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3 says, no. You have the Holy Spirit inside, which will show you the person and love of Christ. So that God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you can think or imagine. So which one's indwelling you? Again, I go back. There's one God. In three persons indwelling a believer. First Corinthians. Well, yeah, let's do first Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? Galatians chapter four, verse six. Because you are sons, God has sent forth His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And at that point in time, guess what happens? Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, verse 13. For by one spirit you were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, we are all made to drink 
of one spirit. This is why the Apostle Paul says there's only three entities on the planet Earth. Jew, Gentile, and believers. Okay? There's no such thing as a Messianic Jew. Okay? Or a completed Jew. That's sort of like saying, well, I'm a completed Gentile. Okay? That's silly. You're either a believer, or you're a Jew, or you're a Gentile. Isn't that amazing? That one little verse. All of that's in that one little verse. And everybody says, well, man wrote that. Man couldn't have figured that out. God wrote that. God's benediction, if you think about it, I'll conclude, is fitting, is it not? Considering this goofy church, he concludes with, may you receive a triune blessing from him who redeemed you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They had broken fellowship. They had forsaken love and they were treading on grace. All of the rebukes that had gone to the Corinthian church, the chaos, the sin, the catastrophic mess that was this church. And he ends it with a note of blessing. Listen, I spend a lot of time with the Apostle Paul. I probably spend more time with the Apostle Paul than I do anybody. Paul's desire for believers, specifically the Corinthians, was to put themselves in a position to experience all the blessings that salvation brings. One of the things that breaks my heart on a consistent basis almost daily is that Christians do not experience the blessings that their salvation brings. They're always wanting something else. And you know what? There's nothing greater. It is that goal that the Apostle Paul That he defended his positions and he defended his message. Because I want you to know the blessings of your salvation. And that is why he rebuked. That is why we should exhort. That is why we encourage. And that is why we pray for them. There can be no higher goal for any faithful pastor than that is for his people that they experience what salvation brings. Listen, I got news for you. There are not degrees of dark. There is not degrees of lost. You're either lost or you're not. You're either in the dark or you're in the light. You're not walking in the dim. Okay? But there are those who are in the light that don't understand it. And they don't experience the blessings of their salvations. Paul's passion. Our passion. Is that we would know first... And help others to know the full riches that God grants to us, each and every one of his children, through our redemption. Now that we have been reconciled with God. That's an amazing way to end this letter. This church broke this man's heart. I cannot think of anything that could hurt more than to have people accuse you in the congregation that you founded and you trained. For three years. Going from house to house. Day and night. And no one defend you. And yet he concludes that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Be with you all. Stand in the power and providence of the triune God. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Considering what this church had done. Considering what this church had done. Let each of us press on to experience the fullness of our salvation. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. I thank you for the Corinthians. I thank you, Lord, that you let them hear. Father, I pray for us. Give us ears to hear. And Father, we may understand the urgency of our day. We may understand the foolishness that is all around us in the name of Christ. 
And yet, Father, may we understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and may we eager for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Help us to hear, Lord. Help us to understand this ain't no game. This isn't killing time. We are complete. Father, may we rejoice. May we be comforted. May we be like-minded. May we live in peace. And may the God of love and peace be with all of us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this letter. To you, my King, my Lord, my Savior. Amen.